Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. And my name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Peter Bagshaw, a GP and CCG lead for mental health and dementia. And it's very good that you're with us today, Peter, because we want to do a deep dive into dementia. We did one some months ago, and this is number two, and we wanted to focus on, on prevention. So are you up for that today? Absolutely. If, yes, we'll, we'll go for it, Andrew. So tell me, how did you get an interest in mental health particularly? Because you've done an awful lot of work on it, not just in Somerset, but across the southwest over over the years. Yes, well, I've always been interested in the mind and the interaction between the mind and body and had a family history of relatives with mental health problems and dementia and so on that got me interested in it. And then I became CCG lead in South Gloss. And dementia at that stage was was absolutely enormous. And, and so I started doing work at, at uh, the regional le- level. I was um, dementia lead for the Southwest Clinical Network and also uh, some nationally as well. I'm co-author of an oldest pe- older people's mental health uh, primer. So it's, it's an area that's always interested me. And I think that on dementia particularly, I get very excited that a lot of people don't realize just how much we can do to reduce our risk of dementia. It's a horrible thing to have. 888,000 people in in the UK are living with dementia. It's now the leading leading cause of death, and it's the most feared diagnosis in the over 50s. So it's a really important condition to know about. And, And we can actually reduce our risk, not just a little bit around the edges, but by about 40%. That's really interesting, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But uh, before we go there, a lot of us get a bit forgetful at, at times. Is forgetfulness dementia? Is, there a, is, is it rather more than that? And, and I suppose the question I would ask then is, is there any quick, easy way using a clock face or anything that can help us work out whether something's going on? I think it's difficult for us to know ourselves whether we've got a problem. And one of the things about dementia is that it seems to rob us of our ability to realise that our brain isn't functioning as it should. And I'm sure that's something you see, Andrew, where relatives will quite rightly say, this person has got severe memory problems, but the person themselves often doesn't realise it. So there are these simple tests that we as GPs can do, but I think self-diagnosis is difficult. What I would say is that it's more than just not remembering things. So there's this benign forgetfulness of old age. A lot of people, as we get older, find that we get blocked with certain things. Dementia is more than that. It's a progressive condition. It is about memory, but it's also about not being able to process information in a timely fashion. So a loss of insight, and and sometimes that may progress into a disintegration of personality a bit. Yes, there are different phases. So in the early stages, it tends to be just finding difficulty remembering things and often things like apathy. So it can be very difficult to tell between dementia and depression, for instance. Uh, And again, that can be quite a sophisticated diagnosis. So I think my message to anyone who's either worried about their own memory or about a loved one is go along and see your GP. Uh, There's an awful lot that can be done some forms of dementia uh, there's treatment that will help improve things 
it may well be something completely treatable like a thyroid problem or something else that, that is easy to put right. Or it may be something like depression, which again is eminently treatable. So if you're worried about your memory, please see your doctor. Uh, and what might we expect the doctor to do? Because the test I learned was the mini mental state, which is uh, you score 30 and there's 10 different questions. But is there anything a bit simpler that, that is useful? There is. There are a couple of things that are used now. So GP cog and mini cog are both used. And they're really straightforward. It's just a question of being asked to remember three words, to draw a clock face, write it at 10 past 11 and repeat the words. And so it's a, a very simple test that takes a short period of time. If that test suggests that there are memory problems, then it's important for the doctor to rule out other conditions, as I was saying earlier. So a, a battery of blood tests is always recommended. And not in everybody, but in a lot of people, a CT scan, a brain scan is helpful. And although the, often it can be diagnosed by the GP, there are memory clinics around the country and people will often be referred there for further testing. And, and that's the potential trajectory. That's the potential path that we might follow. But I was really excited to hear you say that actually quite a lot of dementia may be preventable or at least modifiable. So how does that work? What, what, what can we do to prevent ourselves slipping in, into difficulties if, if that's what it seems that might be happening? Well, the first thing to say is that it's better to, to do it early. So it, it seems to be about a 20-year trajectory from the very earliest changes that you can establish in the brain to frank dementia. So that really starting a, a healthy lifestyle in middle age is the best way to, to be. Having said that, it's never too late. And it looks as though even with people with established dementia, there are lifestyle changes that can help reduce the risk of progression. So do you want me to go into the individual things that we can do, Andrew? Yes, please. That would be very helpful. Um, so I've come along to you, Peter, let's say you're my doctor. I'm saying I'm worried I might get dementia, partly because there's a family history and maybe my, my diet's not that good and I'm a, maybe I don't do much exercise and maybe I'm a bit overweight. Doc, what should I do? What, what, what advice are you going to give me? So firstly, not to get overly worried about the genetic history. So a lot of us will have a family history of someone in the family who has dementia. And there is this gene, APOE4, that increases the risk of dementia, but the increased risk is fairly, fairly small, a few percent only. So not to get too worried about that. And we can't do anything about that either. The other big risk for dementia, of course, is getting older, and we can't do anything about that. So there's no point worrying about these things. So amongst modifiable risk factors, you've got the good for the heart is good for the brain message. You've got some specific things about helping the brain specifically. And there are a couple of other random things. So probably best to take those in order, if that's okay. Yes, please. Good for the heart is good for the brain. Absolutely. So the nice thing is that the message about how we can help our brain to function is very similar to one that we're all familiar with. And although there are these specific things that happen in dementia that people will probably know about with certain uh, proteins uh, in, the, in the nerve cells getting tangled and so on, it looks as though increasingly we're talking about the idea of brain health. And so anything that improves blood throw, 
improves efficiency in the in the nerves uh, is helpful. So the sort of factors that, that make a big difference are high blood pressure, diabetes, being overweight, smoking, and physical inactivity. Uh, which um, in some ways we think, well, that's just happened to me, but do we have choices? The first three you mentioned, high blood pressure, diabetes, and being overweight, sounded suspiciously like something called metabolic syndrome. Can you tell us about that and, uh, and how, what we can do about it? I think metabolic syndrome is the most underrated uh, preventable cause of death and premature ill health. So you're absolutely right that it looks as though high blood pressure, often altered fats, so-called dyslipidemia, but the high cholesterol that we all know about, um, and things of things like gout, uh, are all a function of metabolic syndrome, as is obesity. So metabolic syndrome stems from, in most cases, a thing called insulin resistance. And this is really where we're having too much sugary foods, too much simple carbohydrates over a prolonged period of time. And when that happens, the body produces very high levels of insulin to try and bring that blood sugar down. And that gradually causes damage. It means it lays it fat down in the body. Uh, it means it pushes up blood pressure. It, it alters the fats in the blood in a negative way. And it's the main cause of type 2 diabetes. And I'd stress we're only talking about type 2 diabetes here. Type 1 diabetes, as you know, is, is completely different. Um, but type 2 diabetes, uh, people like David Unwin, who's a, a GP, is able to reverse that in over half his patients simply by diet and lifestyle changes. So it doesn't need medication. For most people, it's a question of eating less and exercising more and in particular cutting down on sugar, and a lot of people find a low-carbohydrate diet also helpful. So type 2 diabetes, diabetes is a, is a problem with insulin production and a failure of insulin, sufficient insulin at the right time uh, in, in the blood. It's hyperinsulin for a long time. Insulin resistance is essentially, in, in layman's terms, that the, the pancreas is tired? Yeah, absolutely. It's been worn out by having to deal with these massive amounts of sugar that uh, we tend to consume now, which clearly we haven't evolved for. And in fact, there is a school of thought that says uh, that dementia is type 3 diabetes. And that's interesting. And it's not just sugar, Peter, because some carbohydrates, wheat, for instance, uh, is actually a very fast release and gives us quite a surge in blood sugar, whereas other complex carbohydrates and uh, um, um, particularly some of the fruits and uh, but vegetable fiber is much slower at doing that that's right and the simple carbohydrates tend to be the cheap ones unfortunately so particularly for people uh, on a on a limited budget uh, they're much more likely con to consume that food that sort of food and that's why there is this link between type 2 diabetes, obesity, and uh, poverty yeah. uh, in the Western world. But not, all is not lost because there are quite cheap, good carbohydrates, which are safe. Potatoes have a less of a, of a, of a, of a blood sugar surge, I understand. And, and things like the, the, the chickpeas and the lentils and all those other, other things um, are actually much slower release, I believe. 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, now with the introduction of CGMs, these continuous glucose monitors, people are actually being able to uh, test this in real time. You're probably aware that there's a, a thing called the glycemic index, which is a marker of how rapidly food will produce sugars into the bloodstream. And so in general, you want to go for things with a low GI, a low glycemic index. And this is all available on the web if people want to uh, look at it. There's also David Unwin has produced some interesting uh, things. Again, if you Google David Unwin infographics, there are lots of things showing the sugar equivalents of different foods. It takes a bit of work, but once you get the hang of it, it's really, really simple. And in general, it means steering away from processed food and going to more natural whole food, maybe more proteins, more good fats. Olive oil, for instance, is a, is a very good fat with lots of benefits in all sorts of ways. That's really interesting. So type 3 diabetes um, affecting the brain is partly due to, to what we eat. Is sleep important? Because I read somewhere that actually if we don't sleep enough, we don't produce enough melatonin and, and, it, and, it, and it pushes the body hard. We've got higher levels of cortisol and, and things, particularly in summer when the daylight is a very long days and that's a biological thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's a, a neuroprotective factor, a hormone that's produced during sleep that seems to allow uh, not just neurons to recover, but lots of other systems to recover as well. So sleep is important. So we've got sleep, we've got um, nutritional intake. What other important factors help protect the brain? Well, exercise we've talked about. Now, that can be a bit of a double-edged sword. So there's been a lot in the press recently uh, about footballers getting dementia early. So in general, exercising is incredibly helpful. And again, it produces all sorts of excellent hormones that are really, really helpful. And there's lots of evidence that lack of exercise uh, makes dementia more likely. But if it's exercise that causes repeated brain trauma, then that can be counterproductive. So football, we know about boxing, uh, for instance, we know about uh, Muhammad Ali, for instance, had Parkinson's disease, didn't he, which is a, related to dementia. So sadly, brain trauma uh, can be counterproductive. So we're not thinking necessarily about big bleeds and massive brain trauma. We're thinking about concussion from just a, a header because uh, I, I headed a ball once. I'm sorry, I don't play football very much. I headed a ball once and it really hurt. Um, mm. <laughs> yes, ab absolutely. Um, and my father, who got dementia, he played rugby and got... Uh, about six months where he couldn't remember uh, after that. So he got significant concussion. And, uh, you know, things were, were really bad with the, the generation of people now coming up to those risk factors. I'm, I'm sure some of our people are, are old enough to remember the days of very wet uh, leather footballs that were a lot harder and heavier than the, the ones used today. Absolutely. But I wouldn't want to put people off exercise. Most people, it's of great benefit. But the concussion which shakes the brain and which may be swirling the, 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 the blancmange or the jelly-like um, substance inside is just swiping off a whole load of um, nerve cells and it's just cutting them off. Yes. And, and it looks as though there are other odd things that can uh, damage nerve cells that people might not think about. So there's a very interesting study uh, a few years ago showing that the further away you live from a main road, the lesser your chance of 
developing dementia so that uh, pollutants in the air uh, are a significant risk factor for dementia because of that gradual buildup of damage yep. to the nerve cells. Yes, air, air cell, um, air, air safety and air cleanliness is linked now to a, quite a number of ranges of diseases. Yes, absolutely. I think it's, again, it's been a very underestimated cause of ill health, hasn't it? And then maybe looking at, worth looking at other things that help protect the brain. So we know that um, being sociable, having those sort of activities uh, is really helpful and that people who have a large social interaction, again, that's, that's a hugely protective factor. A little bit of doubt about why that's the case, but it, it's definitely been shown in lots of studies. And interestingly, uh, hearing is linked as well. Um, there's, this is a fairly new finding that's come out. So people who have uh, poor hearing are more likely to get dementia. And we don't quite know yet to what degree that is that deafness is another marker of neurodegeneration or whether it's that people who are hard of hearing find it more difficult to socialise, and that increases their risks. And they have less of the stimuli coming in, and so the brain isn't exercised perhaps as much. Because it sounds from what you're saying is it's very much a question of use it or lose it. Uh, and, and the more you use it, the more the, more the, the brain muscle gets exercised and, and stays healthy. Absolutely. And, and in exactly the same way as when you're doing physical exercise, it's important to, to use different muscle groups. Uh, it's important to do that with brain exercise. So just, just doing a brain training app probably isn't going to make that much good or just doing Sudoku. But if you mix around things and do different brain activities, that's been shown to be very helpful. That's helpful to know. And do any particular groups have more risk of dementia, whether it's uh, whether we're neurotypical or neurodiverse or whether we come from a particular background? Do we know if, if any of those factors are in play? Again, um, as with heart disease, some BME communities are at increased risk of dementia, unfortunately. Um, so it seems that they are more uh, genetically prone to metabolic syndrome and all the ill effects that go with that. There's a particular group of people with learning difficulty who are much more likely to develop uh, dementia at an early stage, particularly those with Down syndrome. Um, in terms of neurotypical, I, I'm not aware of any, any particular evidence around that. Um, and again, I would want to really dwell on the, the risk factors that we can alter rather than the things that we can't do anything about. So coming back to modifiable risk factor factors, um, sm smoking and alcohol are always in the frame for everything, aren't they? And I'm afraid that applies to dementia as well. Um, that's, that's, that's a message that's gone on for a long time. And it's, uh, I think smoking has changed greatly in the, in the country and there's a lot of help available to help people with that. Alcohol is an interesting one because it's, it's quite social. I remember um, doing some police work a while back and, and, um, going to a, uh, an education evening where um, one of our consultant psychiatrists from Somerset was talking and he said, everybody coming through custody who's withdrawing should have thiamine in big doses um, because it's brain protective. And certainly um, 
that there have been moves over the years to try and get thiamine into alcoholic drinks and it hasn't worked but maybe maybe if we do enjoy our drinks perhaps we should take a little dose of thiamine to help protect the brain and b vitamins i don't know <laughs> that's a really tricky one isn't it i don't think we can be seen to endorse excessive uh, alcohol consumption but no you're absolutely right that a lot of the things that we tend to say are due to alcohol damage are actually due to thiamine uh, b vitamin deficiency and and so that definitely is is going to be protective but i'm afraid and i'm really sorry and you know i'm somebody who who likes the odd glass of whiskey myself um that the message has to be try to limit your alcohol use rather than counteracting its effects by taking other things and since 2016 the chief medical officer advice is the same for women and men which is maximum of 14 units a week and uh, remembering how much a unit is it's 10 milliliters of alcohol so uh, a bottle of wine of 700 mils that's 14 percent will be let me do my math quickly that's 9.8 units uh, and and a can a 500 mil can of 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 seven percent uh, lager or cider which is pretty strong would be 3.5 units so that doesn't give us much leeway in the week it doesn't and there's interesting evidence about uh, drug and alcohol use increasing in older people because we tend to share a bottle of wine at home rather than going out to the pub and as you say it's very very easy to get over those official units uh, in that way sadly i'm sorry to to be the bearer of bad tidings everything else is fun uh, all the other things that we can do to improve our chances of a long and healthy life uh, is actually fun. And the alcohol, people have to make their own judgment. But it, I think we need to say it is a risk factor. Thank you. Are there any other modifiable things? Is there anything else that we can do? We've, we've covered diet and nutrition. We've covered alcohol. We've covered um, um, activity i hesitate to use the word exercise because it puts fear into some of our hearts um, uh, it g gives me thoughts of lycra and uh, and cycling very fast or having to run run on a, a very long way rather fast which um, i find scary so i probably not, won't start instead um any other thoughts yes i mean on the uh, exercise i uh, I'm, I'm very relieved to hear that you won't be donning lycra andrew um but it doesn't need to be a lot. We don't need to go out for long runs to get the benefit. It's fairly short amounts of exercise uh, that gives us benefit. And after that, it starts to taper off. So really just doing a little bit more than we're doing at the moment, that can be just walking around uh, and, and doing light exercise is, is enough to give us benefits. Diet is a really interesting other thing that we haven't discussed. And it's very controversial. So we were talking about low carbohydrate diets, and there is actually some evidence that if you have established uh, dementia, going on to a ketogenic diet, which is a very low carbohydrate diet, uh, helps to reduce the dementia getting worse. So I'm not advocating that for everyone. It, it is a very restrictive diet, but it does just show the effects of alcohol on brain function. And again, all the things that we know about for uh, the heart. So uh, I was mentioning olive oil, and that seems to be the one uncontroversially uh, excellent for everyone uh, thing to have in your diet. Seed oils, much more controversial. They, they may be good for cholesterol, but they're probably bad for inflammation. So I, my personal advice would be to go for uh, olive oil. Avoiding sugary things, avoiding, again, 
those those tempting snacks that we all tend to do and going more for whole food uh, is probably helpful and there's some really interesting things that I, I imagine you would know a lot about Andrew about the gut brain access and how what we eat affects the bugs in our gut and that in turn can affect our uh, our mental health and our, our brain function absolutely peter i think that's possibly one for for another time but just on oils um it's there's something about omega-3s and omega-6s and the seed oils are quite heavy in omega-6s whereas olive oil is a is a mono uh, mono unsaturate but um omega-3s are said to be quite helpful so that's the fish oils and and others absolutely yep omega-3 good omega-6 bad in uh, in very brief language um, fish oils, of course, you've, you've got complications that if you have too much fish, you can start to get heavy metals uh, because, sadly, the, the, the oceans uh, have got quite a lot of heavy metals in. But, yes, certainly omega-3, absolutely, I would endorse. And the, the standard advice is try and have oily fish three times a week. And if you don't, you can actually buy, um, and I can't mention the brand because other brands may be available, you can actually buy fish oils as capsules and some of us uh, brave will actually take a teaspoonful of it. And uh, there may be some listeners who remember cod liver oil being given to them in their youth. If it was if it was me, uh, I had it on a sugar lump to taste the take take the taste away. So I'm not sure if the if the benefits of the cod liver oil were outweighed by the sugar consumption. Thank you. Uh, is there a question that arises for some people is, does vegan or vegetarian diet make a difference, either positively or negatively? And does supplements make any difference? Supplements, on the whole, have got a bad press. I, I would agree with you about the uh, omega-3, uh, if we're not able to get it in other ways, possibly the B vitamins, uh, and possibly vitamin D, uh, which a lot of us are slightly low in, particularly in the winter months, because depression is another risk factor for, for dementia, and people low in vitamin D are more likely to, to feel low. Inter vegetarians generally uh, have a slightly better heart profile than meat eaters. So generally being vegetarian uh, is beneficial. You need to be sure that you've got all your essential amino acids by having a, a balance of... Uh, of lentils and pulses and also uh, dairy products. Vegan, it's much more difficult to get those essential amino acids. And I, I would be wary about a vegan diet. I know it's very much uh, of the moment and I shall probably get a lot of flack for saying this, but I certainly clinically see quite a lot of people who are vegans uh, who have deficiencies. So unless you're willing to take supplements, I think that's quite a difficult diet to, to get all the right things from. I don't know what you're feeling on this, Andrew. Um, I think there are many worthy aspects about uh, vegan and vegetarian, but one of the problems is that meat is such an easy source of iron, of B vitamins, uh, and, and of other things which are actually very difficult to get otherwise. Uh, and it's thought that, um, as you say, vegans particularly, it's well worth their while learning about nutrition and possibly learning about supplements, whether it's particularly the B12 uh, and some other B vitamins, because they otherwise find themselves deficient without realising that, uh, that that's happening. I think that's right. And I've, I've got lots of friends and family who are uh, both vegan and vegetarian. And 
it's harder work if they do it and they learn about what's needed and how to get the right nutrition then it can be a very healthy diet and as you say lots of other arguments about it being better for the planet um, but you do have to work at it i think you, you do indeed Peter, that's been a fascinating dive uh, into dementia and prevention. Are there any other tips that you'd like to share with us? I think we've gone through the main things. What I would stress at the end of this is, as I said at the beginning, that we're not talking about some tinkering at the edges. A lot of people think that dementia is an inevitable part of ageing, and it really isn't. So you can modify your risk of this most feared disease, not just by a couple of percent or even 10%, but by at least 35, probably 40, some people would say even higher percent. So you can almost halve your risk of getting dementia by following these lifestyle tips. And even if you're only able to do some of them, that will make a very significant uh, difference to your risk of getting dementia. So I really feel this is a hugely important message. If it were there in a pill, everybody would want to take it. But because it's about lifestyle changes, people find it more challenging. But grab it. I've, I've made a few changes myself, and I, I certainly feel slightly sharper mentally. I wouldn't say that I'm you know, inevitably going to stave off dementia, but I feel it's been worthwhile. And I, I really would advocate people uh, to give it a try. Peter, thank you very much. That was absolutely fascinating. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.